Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 562 for the 1st of October, 2017. This week, with a little bit of effort, you can run the Linux command line from Windows 10. That function will be enabled automatically following the next Windows update, but maybe you'd like to take a closer look at Linux itself to see whether it might serve your needs. This week, we'll consider how to do that. In short circuits, we haven't looked at specific email frauds for a while, so we'll see a phony mystery shopper offer and one of those look-at-this-important-document ploys designed to steal Google credentials. And if you think crooks pose the greatest risk to a business network, well, you're looking in the wrong place. In spare parts, only on the website, despite repeated warnings, people still click bad links and create needless trouble for themselves. Digital assistants are coming to help with your home automation, the next big thing in retail sales might be a streaming app that lets you talk with a store clerk from home. And computer manufacturers are probably dismayed that more companies are making universal docking stations that cost a lot less. Linux has been around for a long time. It pretty much runs the internet all by itself, with not much help from other operating systems. Software developers like it. Its cousin, Unix, is the basis for the Mac OS, and Unix has been around even longer. Microsoft will incorporate some Linux components into the next big Windows update, and you could activate it now if you know where the magic buttons are. So you could be running the Linux shell, which is called Bash, on your Windows 10 computer right now. Why not just set up Linux on your computer? And we've been down this path a time or two before. Over time, Linux has become easier for non-techies to set up. It has gained some of the features that people like about Windows and Mac OS. It's far more than adequate for anyone who needs to write letters or books, calculate things, write programs, connect to other computers, and really do a lot more. The impediment for me has always been the inability to run Adobe applications natively under Linux. There are ways, but I don't care for any of them. A lot of people would be likely to find that Linux, and the Ubuntu distro in particular, would serve them quite well, if only they'd give it a try. There are some things to ponder if you're thinking about switching to Linux. For example, most proprietary or commercial software doesn't have a Linux version. Some will run acceptably under Wine. Wine, by the way, stands for Wine is not an emulator. But be sure to check your individual applications before you really seriously consider the move. If you depend on applications that won't run properly under Linux, you can consider creating a virtual machine that runs under Windows and install Linux there. Be prepared to read a lot, and be frustrated during the changeover. Installing Ubuntu is easy, but you'll still need to do a lot of things to create a fully operational system. Some of those tasks are not exactly straightforward. Fortunately, there are lots of online resources such as Ask Ubuntu, where you can get a lot of help and good advice. 
Expect Ubuntu to recognize your wired or wireless LAN, your keyboard, your mouse, the video subsystem. In fact, the Ubuntu installer will find all, or at least most, of your hardware and peripherals and set them up properly. You might need some additional proprietary drivers for some of the hardware, but the installer should ask if you want to have those installed. And finally, in my list of cautions, Ubuntu is not Windows. Maybe I've mentioned that before. And installing programs is different on Ubuntu. Ubuntu uses a package management system. These packages can be programs or libraries and other components. Ubuntu doesn't use dynamic link libraries like Windows does. And the package manager will ensure that all necessary dependencies are addressed. There are some ways to edge into Linux, and I'm speaking primarily about Ubuntu, which is probably the best-known Linux distribution. If you have an older computer around the house, maybe a desktop system or a notebook that you retired, why not install Ubuntu there and see what happens? The process is easy enough. Just download the ISO file, burn a disk, and then use that disk to boot the computer that you want to install Linux on. Linux can be installed to dual boot with Windows, the simpler installation is to make it the only operating system on the computer. That's why using an older, retired computer is a good idea. Now, assuming you have retired the computer that you're going to use for the experiment, installing Ubuntu as a standalone makes a lot of sense. Just remember that the computer's hard drive will be formatted, and any previous operating system or data on it will be lost. That's why you really need to be sure that it is a retired system and that you have transferred all the files you need to the new computer or somewhere else where you can get them. The installation is straightforward and easy. Follow the prompts and answer the questions. If you're not sure how to answer a question, just take the default answer. Early on, you'll be asked how you want the disk formatted. One option will be dual boot, and that's probably what will be selected by default, so you'll want to change that option to have Ubuntu take over the entire computer. A third option will let you specify some of the formatting details. Now, those are decisions for a Linux Pro. Just pick either dual boot or Linux alone. After that, the default answers should be fine. You'll be asked to connect to a network, create an account, indicate your time zone and language, and a few other standard things. Ubuntu will ask if you wanted to use some proprietary software from device manufacturers. This used to be a convoluted step, but now the installer makes it easy. And definitely you do want the proprietary software from device manufacturers. That makes setting up your peripherals a lot easier. Unless the computer is ancient and underpowered, your new Linux system will probably be up and running in less than 30 minutes. When Ubuntu Linux is running, you'll see that it looks a lot like any other graphical operating system. What Windows users would call the taskbar and Mac users would call the dock is referred to as the launcher. It can be on the left side, the right side, the top, or the bottom of the screen, wherever you want it. For testing, and for the images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, I placed the launcher on the left and pinned several applications to it. The running applications include a web browser, LibreOffice Writer, and a terminal window that displays the resources used by the running applications. Ubuntu has a settings panel. It'll look really familiar to any Mac or Windows user. Unlike on Windows or the Mac OS, most of the applications you'll use on a Linux machine will come with no cost. Many Linux distros have a software store application that looks a lot like Mac, Microsoft, and Google software stores, with the exception of prices. There usually aren't any. Now you can think of a distro as a version, 
there are dozens, if not hundreds, of Linux distros. If you use the Ubuntu store, you will need to create an Ubuntu One account and use it there. Then the applications will be downloaded, installed, and updated automatically. Linux doesn't have drive letters, so Mac OS users will be more familiar with the way that Linux displays files and folders. Files are still files, folders are still folders. Until recently, Windows had some problems connecting to certain network-attached storage drives. Windows 10 has largely eliminated that problem, and Ubuntu has no problem at all. Anytime you talk about operating systems, there is the danger of flame wars. I'd like to avoid those. I think they're silly. Ofer Chaikhan recently wrote a brief yet comprehensive explanation of his switch from Windows to Ubuntu Linux. Now, he's a software developer, but many of his observations apply to non-developers, too. And the article thankfully omits the rapid partisanship that so often infests discussions of operating systems. One of Chaikhan's observations parallels mine, and he explains why we have taken different paths. My concern, and his, is the lack of Adobe applications on Linux. Unfortunately, he says, Adobe hasn't released any of its products to Linux users, so it's impossible to run them directly. The Ubuntu alternative is GIMP. This is a free software and has the basic features for a developer designer. I, on the other hand, am not a software developer, and I depend on Adobe applications, so GIMP really is not an option for me, and most of the other Adobe applications have only weak analogs on Linux systems. There are ways to run Windows applications on a Linux system. I prefer not to use them, though. So those considerations are essential to making the right decision about which operating system to use. Chekhan's essentials included speed and support for development tools. That makes Linux an excellent choice for him. As Chekhan writes, Linux is not for everyone. Check to see if it fits your needs before you decide to switch. If you consider yourself either a technological entrepreneur, developer, data scientist, or programmer, you should definitely check out Ubuntu, he says. If you're thinking about Linux, I enthusiastically recommend his article. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you don't want to abandon Windows, and you don't have a spare machine sitting around that you can install Linux on as a test, you can more or less have the best of both worlds. VirtualBox is an open-source application that makes it possible to install what's called a guest operating system on the computer's built-in or host operating system. It's not just for running Linux on a Windows computer. It runs on Windows, Linux, Macintosh, and Solaris hosts, and supports guest operating systems such as Windows, DOS, Linux, Solaris, OpenSolaris, OS2, and OpenBSD. So you can run DOS 6.22 on a Mac. The one you can't do, at least not easily and without breaking the law, is to run the Mac OS on any other computer. You can download VirtualBox from Oracle's website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So while we're thinking about why and how you might install Linux, let's consider a virtual machine. The big advantage to a virtual machine is the ability to install multiple operating systems on a single computer and to access any of them without having to reboot. The big disadvantage of a VM is the amount of disk space it'll take, the fact that it'll consume a lot of memory when it's running, and the slower performance of any guest operating system. Well, nothing's perfect. But the VM option might be right for you if you're okay with those trade-offs.
you'll find an excellent explanation of how to install an Ubuntu virtual machine instance on LifeWire. There's a link to LifeWire from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'll repeat or amplify just a couple of points from that article. After you've installed VirtualBox, which is also covered on the LifeWire site, so I'm not going to talk about it here, you can create your first virtual machine. The only option for Ubuntu is a 32-bit application, so be sure you've downloaded the 32-bit ISO even if you have a 64-bit computer, and you probably do. The 32-bit system will be slower than a 64-bit system. It won't be able to access as much memory, but there is no option for a 64-bit installation. Initially, I set the base memory at 2,048 megabytes. The resulting installation was beyond slow. It was positively lethargic. So I tried again and increased the memory to 3,072 megabytes. That helped, but it's still not as fast as I'd like. I also allocated more memory to the video subsystem than the default setup suggested. Make sure you check the options to download updates during the installation process and to install third-party software for graphics, Wi-Fi, Flash, MP3, and other media. These are not open-source applications, and a Linux purist would probably run from the room at the very suggestion of allowing these applications onto a Linux computer. Trust me, you need them. If you want the virtual machine to work, just select them. You will see one screen during the installation that will probably frighten you just a bit. The Linux installer will ask if you want it to format the disk. You do. Keep in mind that the Linux installer is running inside a virtual machine, and you've already created a virtual disk drive that is simply a file on one of your computer's disk drives. When the Ubuntu installer formats this disk, it touches only the virtual disk. In other words, if you follow the instructions carefully, all the disk drives in your computer are safe. You'll also need to set a name for the virtual computer and create an account for use on the computer. I'd recommend using your Windows password as the Ubuntu Virtual Machines password. It's just easy to remember. So how well does a setup like this work? Well, in my test case, even with more memory and expanded video memory, I consider it too slow for anything but experimental use. It is good enough to allow prospective users to determine whether Linux might serve their needs, though. You'll see a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows both of my monitors. Ubuntu is on the left, and the Windows applications are on the right screen. So, you decide to install a virtual machine, you work with it for a few weeks or maybe a few months, then it's choice time. You've got several options. If you think, hey, this is great, I'll just keep using Linux this way. Well, then you're done. No changes are needed. Maybe you'll think, hmm, I like Linux, but this is too slow, and I also need Windows. Well, if that's the case, then consider setting up a dual boot system. Linux will be considerably faster that way, but you will have to reboot the computer every time you want to run a Linux session, and every time you want to switch back to Windows. If that's your choice, be sure to download the 64-bit version if you'll be installing on a 64-bit computer. It's considerably faster. Maybe you'll think, well, Linux blows Windows out of the water. Well, in that case, make sure you've backed up all your files, everything you'll need access to, and then install Ubuntu as the computer's only operating system. And if this is your choice, you also want to be sure you have the 64-bit version if you're installing on a 64-bit computer. Or maybe you just think, Ugh, Ubuntu sucks. Give me back my Windows. 
Well, in that case, delete the Ubuntu virtual machine files and continue to use Windows as if nothing had happened. And if you don't need any other virtual machines, maybe you decide you really don't want to be able to run DOS 6.22, well then, uninstall the VirtualBox too. Sometimes I think that people who fall for obvious frauds got what they deserve. Now really, it's not that hard to examine messages for telltale signs that they were created by crooks, and yet so many people don't. Consider a couple that arrived in my email box recently. Kroger wants me to be a secret shopper. Now, by itself, that really isn't suspicious. Many companies do pay people to visit their stores, interact with employees, and fill out reports. I don't know whether Kroger does this or not. What is suspicious is that the offer is for $200 to $400 per assignment. A legitimate offer for a mystery shopper is typically in the $20 to $50 range. In short, this fails the sniff test within the first five seconds, 10 seconds if you're a slow reader. But then hover your mouse over the sign-up link, or right-click it and choose Copy Link Address. Then paste the link into a text editor, not your browser, and see what it is. When I did this with the Kroger offer, I got an IP address. Legitimate companies use domain names, not IP addresses. So who owns IP address 185.29.11.209? There are plenty of resources on the Internet to find this kind of information. I used one of them to learn that this would take me to a website that is registered in Belize, a small country in Central America, and it's registered to an individual in Latvia. Do you think Kroger is using website services in Belize or Latvia? Yeah, neither do I. Yet people who think they're going to get as much as $400 just to visit a Kroger store and buy stuff might not take the time to consider that. On the Internet, trust nothing. Here's my second example. I use Google Drive, but I wasn't expecting to receive an invitation to view a file from someone in Cleveland, but there it was on my screen. I had been sent an important document. There was some inappropriate and incorrect capitalization. In the message, the word doc, as in Google Docs, isn't capitalized. And there was a mysterious apostrophe in doc. So this was created by someone who doesn't understand English. In other words, it's something that would never see the light of day if Google's lawyers and public relations people had seen it. In other words, it's a phishing attempt from a blithering idiot. And where would this link take me? It would take me to lovasoa.com. That's a domain registered to someone in Madagascar. Has Google recently relocated to an island off the east coast of Mozambique? You might be dubious. I certainly was. A Windows PowerShell function allows websites to be loaded without danger of running any malware that might be served. So that's what I used to see what I might get if I went there. Well, fortunately, there was no visible malware. But clicking the link would have displayed a page that looks a lot like the login page for Google Docs. I would have then been prompted for my Gmail address and password. And then? Well, and then my account would belong to a crook. I might have mentioned this before. On the Internet, trust nothing. Nothing. 
Seriously, this isn't brain surgery or rocket science or even rocket surgery. We can avoid most of this crap by simply paying attention to the obvious clues that creepy crooks show us. There are smarter crooks who use more devious methods, but there aren't as many of them, and they tend to go after high-value targets. trying to keep your company's data secure, who poses the greatest risk? Maybe you're thinking it's the Russian Mafia, Chinese cyber spies, or your competitors. But no, the most serious threat is undoubtedly your employees. That won't be a surprise to security officers at large companies, but it is often a surprise to owners and managers of smaller organizations. In fact, Negligent employees are the primary cause of data breaches, according to a report from Keeper Security and the Ponemon Institute. Researchers surveyed 1,000 IT professionals. 54% said careless workers were the cause of most cybersecurity incidents. More than half of the companies surveyed had experienced such an attack in the past year. Often the attack begins with a phishing email intended to trick the user. Now that's particularly concerning in light of the increase in ransomware attacks. The report says that last year only 2% of respondents described cyber attacks they experienced as ransomware. This year, 52% of the respondents said their companies experienced a ransomware attack. And 53% of the respondents say they had more than two ransomware incidents in the past 12 months. 79% of respondents said the ransomware was unleashed through a phishing or social engineering attack. Although most companies do have some protective measures in place, exploits and malware have evaded intrusion detection systems, an increase from 57% to 66% in the past year, according to respondents, and they have evaded antivirus solutions. That increased from 76% to 81%. Protective applications certainly should be used but they can't be completely depended on. The cost of mitigating these attacks is enormous. The average cost due to damage or theft of IT assets and infrastructure increased from $879,000 to over a million dollars this past year. If you'd like to read the full report sponsored by the password management system company Keeper Security, visit the company's website. And while you're visiting websites, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website for spare parts because that is the only place you'll find it. This week, despite repeated warnings, people still click bad links and create needless trouble for themselves. Digital assistants are coming to help with your home automation. The next big thing in retail sales might be a streaming app that lets you talk with a store clerk from home. And computer manufacturers are probably dismayed that companies are making universal docking stations that cost a lot less. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.